Good morning, Love Chapel Hill. I am Brian Mwanjila. I'm from a small, small country in Africa called Kenya, and I just came to the U.S. Uh, probably five months ago to school. I'm here at uh, Kenan Flagler Business School pursuing my MBA. Yes, and... Uh, <laughs> and yes, from, from the beginning, how my prayer and my desire has been, how does God use me, how does he use me, and somewhere, somehow... I found myself here together with my family. Mm-hmm. And just to realize and understand that indeed it's all about love mm-hmm. and love that is patient, love that is kind, mm-hmm. love that causes us to be an, a new illuminator to other people and make them realize the highest vision that they may have for themselves. Mm-hmm. Sometimes the only way they see love is through us. They won't read the Bible. They may never come to church, but the only way they see God's love is through us. Mm-hmm. And so to be part of that mission here is one of the biggest blessings that God could have given me. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I'm here. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. You want to read first and light first? So today's reading is from Isaiah chapter 2, verse 1 to 5. This is what Isaiah son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. It will be raised above the hills and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat the swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Come, O house of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Amen. So I shall light the hope candle. (laughs) There it is. There you go. Yes. Thank you, Brian. Thank you, man. Appreciate it. Let's thank Brian. Thank you so much, Brian. Fantastic. One of the things I love most about living in this community is that the world comes to Chapel Hill and we get to be introduced uh, to incredible people from all over the world. And we're glad that you're a part of our church family, Brian. Thanks for making this your home. It's awesome. So Brian uh, just lit the first candle of the Advent season. And uh, for those maybe who are not as familiar with this season, it is a season in the Christian calendar uh, that leads up to the celebration of Christmas. And so instead of just rushing to the nativity scene and rushing ahead to the moment of the birth of Christmas, uh, we intentionally walk through this, this tradition and this part that's been a part of the Christian calendar uh, for generations. And churches all around the world are doing this same thing today. Resisting the urge to rush ahead in this season that is often associated with rushing, right? But not to rush ahead, but instead this countercultural stance of patience and waiting and longing, entering into this season of longing. And, and we do that because we join in the ancient story of God's movement around the world. God's people were longing and waiting 
for generation after generation for the arrival of the Messiah that had been promised to them, their hope. This was their deepest prayer. And so over this season of Advent leading up to the celebration of Christmas, we're going to walk with them through those prayers that they prayed, those prayers of anticipation and those prayers of longing. And we're going to be looking at the prophet Isaiah, whom we often refer to as the prophet laureate of Advent, okay? Uh, His are the words that we come back to time and time again uh, because they are so rich with this beauty and prophecy about the coming Messiah. And all of these prophecies of Isaiah are fulfilled in the arrival of Jesus. So we are excited to celebrate the arrival of Jesus, but leading up to that, we're intentionally walking through this time of waiting, waiting in patience, anticipating the arrival of Jesus. That word Advent simply means arrival. And so you hear that word used in culture uh, in different ways. A lot of times people will talk about the advent of a particular kind of life-changing technology, okay? So you hear people talk about the advent of television or the advent of radio. I was not around for either of those, okay? Might be surprising to you. Um, or the advent of the smartphone, okay? And, uh, and so I just instinctively like went for my back pocket because that's where I keep it. Here it is sitting on the table, but I knew it, I, like, I'm reaching for it, okay? It has changed our lives. And so we think about this, uh, the arrival of these technologies that have changed our lives. And oftentimes when we're talking about it, the arrival of these kinds of technologies, the promise of these technologies are that they will give us more time, right? And that's what so many of us think of when we have this. And yes, it does save time. I love the, uh, the fact that the map to anywhere is right here because if I had to rely on a paper map, I would never get anywhere, okay? Um, and, and I love just like all of the information that is at our fingertips and this promise of how much time can be saved because of this innovation, because of this invention. And yet how many of us know that how, how much of our time gets wasted, by that as well. And this promise of giving us so much time, but the actual result in having so much at our fingertips is that much of our time gets stolen or we lose this sense of connection more and more to time. So Advent is this countercultural stance, this this posture of, of waiting in a culture that is obsessed with the elimination of waiting. So we're taking this subversive and countercultural kind of stance. In the kingdom imagination, Advent is telling a different story, encouraging us to wait, to remember what it was like for God's people, longing for that arrival of Jesus. And so that's what we're going to do as we go through uh, over these next several weeks together, these prayers of Isaiah and these promises and prophecies that we find here in the poet Isaiah, uh, as we long for the arrival of Jesus at Christmas. As Brian already read for us, uh, the the first one that we're going to study today is Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. And there are churches all around the world today that are studying this same passage together and beginning this season of Advent, this season of waiting in the same kind of way. I want to read the beginning of this again. Uh, to get us oriented for where we're going to start today. 
So it says this. Uh, this is what Isaiah, son of Amon, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. It will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. So Isaiah begins with this imagery of a mountain, okay? The imagery of a, of a mountain. And uh, immediately you can make the connection of the religious imagery of what a mountain represents in, in different religions, in, in ancient religions. It's a frequent symbol. Who knows what a mountain represents? What comes to mind when you think of a mountain in connection with religion? Say what? Struggle. Okay. The journey up the mountain. Fantastic. What else? Mount Olympus. All right. The dwelling place of the gods. All right. That's great. What else? Yeah, a different perspective when you're up on top of the mountain. Absolutely. And the advantage of that position. That's great. Reaching the peak. Fantastic. All right. So so you see that. Like this is this is what is is uh in the mindset of all of us when we think about a mountain, especially in connection to religion. And so it's present in, in a lot of ancient religions, this the sense that this mountain represents a meeting place. Okay, a mountain is a meeting place for a divine encounter. It's this dwelling place of divinity. And that journey of making it up the mountain is this journey of getting closer to an encounter with God. Okay, so we get that symbolism. Uh, it's in a lot of ancient religions. It's especially key in Israel's history and in their experience with with the one true God, Yahweh himself. He met with his people multiple times on a mountain, and it became for them this symbol of meeting. Okay, so we think about Moses. As Moses is leading the people out of slavery in Egypt uh, and towards the promised land, they have this life-changing encounter with God there on Mount Sinai as the presence of God descends on that mountain in fire and smoke. And it's something that they would never forget. And it shaped them as a people. And as, as Moses climbed that mountain and had this intimate encounter with the divine himself. Okay, so that was in their minds. Uh, they also thought about Elijah. Elijah, one of the most important prophets in the history of Israel. And Elijah has multiple encounters with God on a mountain. In one, there's this showdown between him and the prophets of the false god Baal, in which God's power is poured out in the symbolism of fire in that moment. And so that mountaintop and that intensity of God's presence represented through fire. He also has another experience with God on a mountain where God doesn't show up. There's, there's this, this earthquake and, and God wasn't in the earthquake. There's this whirlwind and God wasn't in the whirlwind, but instead God speaks to him in a whisper and the sense of closeness and the sense of intimacy. And so the, the symbol of the mountain for the people of Israel represented a meeting place with God. It's where God met his people. And so as Isaiah is laying out this image, it's one that was familiar to the people and they're drawn to it and they get it. But the season of Advent takes this image and turns it completely on its head. 
because in Advent, we discover that the mountain has come to us. In the incarnation of Jesus, God in flesh and blood, he comes to dwell with us. So it's not a mountain that's consumed by fire and smoke, but instead it's a baby in flesh and blood. This is mind-blowing. Mind-blowing. Turns our, our whole concept on its head of how we encounter God and what it looks like for us to have a divine encounter. In Advent, God comes to us. God comes to us. God is holy. And because he is so holy, we could never hope to approach him. But God is love. And because he is love, he comes to us. This is the character of God. He is holy love. There's an old theologian of the church and a very early theologian of the church named St. Ephraim uh, the Syrian. And uh, here he is saying, these are not the droids you are looking for. Okay, there's my Star Wars reference for the day, all right? <laughs> this is him getting into the worship song, but not too much into the worship song, all right? Okay, so St. Ephraim the Syrian, here's what he says. He captures this, this mystery of God who comes to us holy and love at the same time, this God of the mountain, and yet the mountain coming to us in a way that, that, that we could never approach him. So he comes to us. He says this, the power that governs all, the power that governs all, God high and mighty above all things, the power that governs all dwelt in a small womb. And while dwelling there, Christ was holding the reins of the universe. So beautiful. And in that language, we get this sense of the tension of the mystery of this God who is so powerful and he fills everything with his fullness. And yet he dwelt in a small womb. And while in that womb, he held the reins of the universe. This is what's taking place in the incarnation. The mountain, the place where God dwells, has come to us. It's come to us. It's a shocking, shocking twist to the story. The next uh, piece of imagery here that Isaiah uses as he goes on, he talks about the mountain and people being drawn to this mountain, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we might walk in his paths. And then he begins to cast this compelling vision of the kind of peace that this God is going to bring to the world. All right. He says this, that when God comes and in this moment, when this prophecy is fulfilled, he will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. And then listen to these poetic words that we still are drawn to today. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. What a compelling picture. This image of, of swords being beaten into plowshares. Spears transformed into pruning hooks. This is a stunning reversal of what would have been the status quo at this day and time. 
In this day and time, it was understood that uh, at any moment, really, you're, you're living in this sense of tension of, of being attacked by, uh, you could be attacked by another village or by another nation that is invading. And everyone in that time period and in the place where this is being written understood that they had to be on guard and that any moment they could shift. People who were normally just simple farmers knew that at any moment they might have to step up and become warriors if their village, if their nation is attacked by an enemy. And if that was going to happen, then what they would do is they would take the tools that they would normally use for farming and they would turn them into weapons. And they would have to use what had been used for farming, they would have to use them for weapons. People understood this. It was just a part of the culture, something that you had to be prepared for. But what Isaiah sees in this vision, in this coming revolution that he envisions, it's a reversal of that status quo. And instead, weapons of destruction will become tools of cultivation. From equipment designed to take lives into equipment designed to sustain and nurture life. And he says, and in this day, when the peace of the Messiah comes and begins to reign, instead of farmers having to become warriors, warriors are going to become farmers. There's going to be this sense of peace that the weapons will be transformed into farming tools again. This sense of overwhelming peace. When he comes with his conquest, when his conquest rolls in his perfect love is going to drive out fear and violence once and for all anybody else hungry for that day to come we're hungry for that and we have this beautiful sense of hope in this passage and we believe it we believe it and at the same time we have to look around at the reality that we live in and recognize that this has not come to fruition yet, and our hearts are aching to see it happen. We're a nation that's riddled by gun violence. We're a nation that's still caught up in war. And everywhere we look around the world, war is either happening or on the verge of happening. This vision hasn't been fully realized yet, and our hearts are longing for it. We sang a song earlier today. Caitlin led us in this song, and, and it's this classic uh, Christmas song called I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. And so it comes from this poem that was written by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. And so the first words as we sung together, I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play, wild and sweet, their words repeat. Peace on earth, goodwill to men. And so it's said that he wrote this poem on Christmas Day as he was walking through his street and he heard the church bells ringing and he heard this song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And so he, he writes this poem in response to that that becomes this hymn that we still sing. And so he writes that first verse about what he heard. But then he writes another verse in answer to that. In answer to that, and he says, the reality in which we're living doesn't match up with that song that I just heard playing 
from the church bells. And so in response, he writes this, in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Part of what inspired him to write these words is that he wrote this on Christmas Day, 1863, while America is in the throes of the Civil War. And too many tables that day were missing fathers and brothers and sons, people who would never return to the family table. A a, a nation being torn apart, family fighting against family. Longfellow's own son was injured in the war fighting for the Union, and at the time that he wrote this, his survival was still up in the air. And so in pain, he writes this as a response. And yet despair in this hymn doesn't get the final word. Because as Christians, we are odd and peculiar people. And even in the midst of despair, we cannot help but hear that song of hope that's still ringing from a deeper place. And we lit this candle of hope, the first candle of Advent. And that is the kind of stubborn stance that we take. And so he wrote this in response, the final word. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor does he sleep. The wrong shall fail and the right prevail with peace on earth. Goodwill to men. Hope always gets the final word. Amen. Amen. Hope always gets the final word. It doesn't ignore the despair in which we live and that surrounds us, but instead, It opens its heart and sees the reality of the hope that is ours in Jesus Christ. We're told that when he arrives, when the Messiah comes, he will bring peace. And we long for that. We long for that. How far will this peace reach? How far do we think it can reach? We look around at what's happening in the world and we hope that it can reach across these borders and into all of these difficult circumstances of turmoil all around us. But perhaps the most difficult places for the peace to reach is not just the abstract universal kind of peace that we hope for, but instead into our own broken relationships and families and homes, which often feel like the most war-torn of battlefields. There's something in us that still thinks there's hope for these nations out there that are at war with each other. And there's still hope for our nation as well. But maybe we don't hold as much hope for our own homes. And we think that battle has already been lost. Maybe we don't think that peace can have its way in our own relationships. And we think that the last word has already been sung. But it's not true. Because hope always has the last word. Hope always does. And the hope and peace of the Messiah is looking to turn warriors into farmers again. And instead of taking lives, and instead of fighting battles, cultivating and sustaining life. 
For some of you, maybe that's your prayer, this Advent. And you're going to hang on to that. And you're going to pray for the peace of the Messiah to work its way into the most impossible place you can imagine, your own relationships. Let's pray for that together. Let's pray for that and hope for that together. Amen. Amen. The next and final piece that we're going to look at is uh, Isaiah intentionally uses this name Jacob. And he says, let's go to the house of Jacob. And then it says, come all descendants of Jacob. Come, O house of Jacob, and let us walk in the light of the Lord. And so we've got all of this talk about peace and of enemies being brought together. And then we have the use of this name, Jacob. Uh, a couple months ago, we walked through the story of Jacob. So we're not going to do that uh, today. You can go back and, and listen to that. And we talked about Jacob wrestling with God in this moment of his, of his wrestling with God. But we know this much, right? And this is what we will go into, is that the name Jacob immediately in the biblical imagination brings to mind the sense of a fractured family, the sense of broken relationships. And that name alone reminds us of his broken storyline. It goes all the way back to Abraham. So Abraham has two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. They are divided and apart from each other. Isaac ends up having two sons, twins, Esau and Jacob, and they are divided from each other, fractured from each other. Their, their brotherhood broken. Jacob ends up having 12 sons and 11 of them turn on Joseph. And there's this fracture there. Those 12 sons together end up becoming the 12 tribes of Israel who form the nation of Israel, which doesn't last very long before that nation splits apart into two rival nations. We see it over and over and over again. And so for Isaiah to be casting this image of peace and then to intentionally invoke this name of Jacob, it makes us stop in our tracks. And it reminds us of what is possible when Jesus comes. What is possible because of the hope of Jesus and what healing can come. This was the, story, the family line of Jesus through Abraham down through Jacob the 12 tribes, and this is Jesus's family line. And out of their division, God sends Jesus into the world to bring peace to the whole world. So out of this broken family comes the Messiah himself, and he's coming with this hope of restoration, of restoring Isaacs and Ishmaels to each other and to himself. This is what he's come to do. From the time of Cain and Abel, sin has been turning family into enemies. According to the Genesis story, it's only the second generation of humanity before brother takes the life of brother. And from the story of Cain and Abel, sin has been turning family into enemies. But Jesus, the advent of Jesus, the arrival of Jesus comes with the hope that enemies can be turned into family. This is the radical hope of Jesus and the song of Advent. Fracture becomes family. It's a great author and uh, one of the most important 
uh, literary voices over the last 100 years, uh, American literary voices over the last 100 years. Her name's Toni Morrison. And here's what she said in her advice to uh, young authors and, and, and people who are uh, wanting to become authors. She says this, if there's a book that you want to read, but it hasn't been written yet, then you must write it. If there's a book that you want to read, but it hasn't been written yet, then you must write it. If there's a story that needs to be told, that you're longing to see told, and you're not seeing it play out, then maybe the author himself is whispering into your ear and saying, you've got to write it. Let me write it through you. If there's division in your life and it's breaking your heart and you're praying for him to heal it, then maybe the author is saying to you, let's write this story together. It doesn't get written unless you pick up the pen. If you're waiting for someone else to write the first word, then maybe the author is whispering into your heart, you pick up the pen and you start. And let's write this story together. The mountain has come to us. This is the hope of Advent, that God makes his way to us. And when he comes, he brings peace, even in the most unthinkable of places, not just across boundary lines, but even within bloodlines. And he's wanting to bring peace to the places where it hits home the most. That's what he's coming to do. And he's inviting you in this Advent season to pick up the pen with him and to begin to write the story that needs to be written. But it might require you writing the first word. Go, Donna. Amen. Amen. Yeah. Yeah. That Jesus, through his grace, initiates that in us, and then we're to respond to that grace and to take the first step. Yeah. Exactly. We're going to come to the table together now. And we're going to celebrate the mountain who came to us. The mountain of strength. Who allowed himself to be broken. He let himself be broken. So that we might be healed. So that all things that are broken in our lives, could be healed. He is so bent on our reconciliation to himself and to each other that he poured out his own blood to make it possible. This is the ink that writes the story that we did not think could possibly be written. He says his blood forgives us of our sins and then empowers us to forgive 
others. It's in his broken body on the cross and his poured out blood on the cross that we are brought into reconciliation with God and we, with each other. And that is possible. So as we are in this season of longing and waiting and hoping for the arrival of Jesus, we pray along with Isaiah that we will begin to see the glimpses of this reality that Jesus brings, not just around the world in abstract and universal kind of ways, but in the places where we need to see it most, in the thick of our own lives, in our own relationships, and within us. If you're prepared to share with him in that story that he is wanting to write, then we invite you to come forward. There'll be two stations today, one on this side, one on that side. And if you need a gluten-free option, then that will be available for you here. As you come forward, simply tear off a piece of the bread, dip it into the cup, and taste and see that the Lord is good. Redemption is possible, and reconciliation is here. Come and receive it. Amen.